Matt. This song ends in two minutes. We'll start then. This is William Fink, Christagonia.org. And this is Christagonia on TalkShoe. Even though Christagonia isn't really on TalkShoe anymore, it's only part of the equation. Christagonia is really on two of our own streaming radio servers. We have our own chat page. And we broadcast on TalkShoe at the same time. Tonight I'm going to have a... um, I'm going to do something slightly, well, well, somewhat different. I'm going to have Warrior Priest on, and he's going to talk about the Scottish Covenanters. And this is, um, and, and the character of the Scottish Covenanters, and, and this is important because okay. the Scottish Covenanters were a persecuted people. This is, um, and, and the character of the Scottish Covenanters. Warrior Priest, I'm sorry, you have to turn your audio off. The Scottish Covenanters were a persecuted people. Um, and, and the character is the Scottish Covenant. Warrior Priest. Oh, that's not good. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> well, wow, that'll ruin a recording. Um, okay, we're going to talk about the Scottish Covenanters and the, the character of the Scottish Covenanters, and that's because... Well, well, that's important and it's relevant to today because the Scottish Covenanters were... Persecuted for rejecting the lordship of the king over their religion, and and um, I still have some feedback, warrior priest. Okay, brother, hang on just one second. Yeah, you'll have to excuse us. This is the first time that warrior priest has done this. He, he's um. A long-time acquaintance of, of the of, of us at Christagenia and and the people in the Christagenia chat rooms and forums, he's done many excellent YouTubes, which have expounded um, social issues, Christian identity doctrine, have um, helped promote some of the work at Christagenia.org, Christagenia New Testament, and, and um, he's been a great asset to our ministry, even though he doesn't realize it. And well, well. Tonight's his first opportunity to participate in a program, what which we offered him last week. I was on the road. Well, we offered him several weeks ago. I was on the road all week. I was in New York, um, visiting my my family, 
and I thought this would be an ideal time to ask him to come on a program and give us a presentation. He chose the topic, and, and um, I, I'm sure he'll do well with it. Hello, Chris. Hey, brother. How you doing? Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Good to be here. Wonderful. Well, well, it's um, I, I'm gonna let you take the ball from here. It's your show, and and I'll I'll, I'll be here for. Uh, and if you want to bounce anything off me, if I, if I have any input, I, I honestly don't know enough about the Scottish Covenants to present <laughs> to, to give a presentation on them. That's for sure. So so it's basically um, it's all yours. Very good. Uh, again, Bill, I want to thank you for allowing me to uh, take the time to share this message. Um, and I apologize for initial feedback. I had uh, several programs open, just catching some feedback off the mic. Um, also want to uh, let everybody know that it's, to me it's an honor to be able to fellowship with y'all tonight. Um, this is my first opportunity to speak in this kind of forum and venue, so I ask that you just bear with us. Uh, I have a good brother and close friend with me tonight, Thomas, and uh, he will be assisting with the dialogue and the telling of the story. Um, we sometimes forget that in the fullness of the Book of Life is a rich foundation of history that we can draw from. We are told in Scripture to look back to the stone from which we are hewn, Abraham and Sarah, and somewhere along that path, many names and saints there are you know many names and saints uh, names of saints and their testimonies that are brought forth. Uh, my thought tonight is simply to present a brief character study of a few of the Scottish Covenanters. This will be a historical count of some of our forefathers and brethren during the time of the tribulation, uh, taken from the book Fair Sunshine by Jacques Purvis. Um, this is still my intention, but as I was looking at their lives, it made me ask some serious questions of myself. It made me consider the present situation of Christendom. It should make us all reflect on how far we've fallen away from the convic convictions held by our fathers. In truth, this message is a testament for all who name the name of Christ, and it makes me ashamed of our present state and condition. Uh, when I started my own self-evaluation researching the martyrs of the covenant, I immediately thought of the verses pertaining to our first love. You know, had I lost something along the way? Did I have the zeal for Christ and his ecclesia, the kind of love displayed by those covenanters? Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.1 that I that Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Or even the admonition given by Christ himself in Revelation 2.5, repent therefore from whence thou art fallen. and re Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of thy place, except thou repent. You know, brethren, we've been given much knowledge. Uh, our teachers and mentors have opened the door of understanding uh, to us as far as the covenant relationship with Yahweh God of Scripture. And we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are the heirs of the promise. And yes, the Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, Celtic, Germanic kindred peoples are the Israel of Scripture. I can read it now with sound assurance in the pages of his word. I feel so blessed to have had my eyes open to see it. But in that understanding comes great responsibility. There are many sons and daughters yet to hear the message of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven, and I hope that you understand what I'm saying. Christ said you will not have gone over all the cities of Israel till I come, and we must continue our first works. You know, what are those first works? Are they not found in the greatest of the commandments? And he answering said, you shall love Yahweh God with all your heart and with all your soul 
with all your strength and with all your might, and you will love your neighbor, your kinsman, as yourself. You know, he'd prefer us to be either hot or cold, but lukewarm, he has promised to spew out of his mouth. And to us, falls the task and the honor of contending for the faith once delivered to the saints. The fact is there's pressing need for the message of an exclusive covenant relationship between Yahweh God and his people. Uh, it, is, it needs to be heard and understood by our fellow kinsmen. Now, if it's all right, let's start with the foundation for tonight's story. Give me just one second. The Scottish Kevin answers a brief foundation. First, I want to draw your attention, if it's all right, to the Declaration of Avroth of 1320, the Declaration, the Scottish Declaration of Independence. In this document, it is attested that the uh, that 1,200 years before this people came to the island, that their forefathers passed through the Red Sea. And this, too, is part of our history. To lay out a little foundational background for tonight's story, the Covenanters were those Christians who believed of the Presbyterian faith of Scotland who signed the National Covenant of 1638. They signed this covenant to, con to confirm their opposition to the interference of the Stuart kings in the affairs of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The Stuart kings harbored the belief of divine right of kings not only did they believe that God wished them to be infallible rulers of their kingdom, they also believed that they had this, that they had the spiritual head of the to be heads of the spiritual church of Scotland. Uh, the latter belief cannot be accepted by the Scots. No man, not even a king, could be a spiritual head of the church. Only Jesus Christ could be the spiritual head of the Christian church. And this was the nub of the entire covenant struggle. The Scots were and would have been loyal to the Stuart dynasty. But, up to the, but for this one sticking point, and from 1638 when the covenant was signed until the Glorious Revolution when Prince William of Orange made a, uh, the bloodless invasion of Great Britain in 1688, a great deal of suffering, torture, imprisonment, transportation, and executions would issue. Um, I'm, not, I'm not again saying that, uh, that uh, William of Orange was a, was a good ruler, but uh, anyway, Britain at the time had an Episcopal religion claiming subjection to the Roman papacy, and yet in the same breath, uh, they, pro they claim to be protesting the church universal. King Charles had introduced uh, the Book of Common Prayer to Scotland in 1637. To the furing resentment of the populace, he declared that opposition to the new liturgy, liturgy would uh, be treason. And thus came the National Covenant of 1638, an open rejection to the king's policy by the faithful. Uh, there followed a period of very se uh, severe repression. Ministers with covenanting, covenanting sympathies were ousted from their churches, Kirks, by the authorities, and had to leave their parishes. Many continued to preach in what were called covenant uh, conventicles uh, in the open air or barns or houses, and this became an offense punishable by death. By the passing of the Covenantal Act of 1646, Citizens who did not attend their local churches, which were now in the charge of the Episcopalian curates, could be very heavily fined, uh, and such offenders were regarded as rebels who could be questioned and even you know, questioned even under torture. Uh, they could be asked to take various oaths, which not only declared loyalty to the king, but also to accept his authority as head of the church. Failure to take such an oath could result in summary execution. 
by the musketeers of the dragoons who were scouring the districts looking for rebels. Uh, the persecution became more frequent and cruel on the restoration of Charles II in 1660. And this was the period in Scottish history known as the Killing Times. Uh, as this time went on, more ordinary folk became involved and skirmishes and battles took place against the government troops. In 1678, the government raised an army of 6,000 Highlanders who had no love for the Presbyterian Lowlanders. And this army swept through the west and south of Scotland, looting and plundering. They remained uh, for, for many years quartering themselves uh, already on the impoverished covenanters. Ministers of the open-air conventicles were executed on the spot. And uh, over this period, about 18,000 covenanters were martyred for the faith. Uh, many more would be banished to the plantations of America as slaves. And that's something that we're, we're generally not taught in history. The first slaves here in America were white. They were our kinsmen. Uh, you know, we would like to share with you four brief stories of the faithful witnesses of Christ in defense of their Kirk and faith. Uh, the members of this group have become known as the Fellowship of the Hunted in defense of Christ. Uh, we, will, we will present James Guthrie, Richard Cameron, David Haxton, Margaret McLaughlin, and Margaret Wilson, uh, starting, with James, uh, starting with James Guthrie. This is Thomas, and I'm going to give you the... Uh, in Fair Sunshine, the, uh, the account of James Guthrie's story. Uh, James Guthrie had much whereof he might have trusted in the flesh, amongst which was a very liberal education, given not with the object of making him a covenanting minister, but meeting with yours and sweet Lord Jesus, Samuel Rutherford. All he had learned against the nonconforming Presbyterians vanished forever, and among them he became a preacher of the gospel in 1638, the year when the National Covenant was signed. His name, too, is set there on the great spiritual Magna Carta. While on the way to pen his name, he met the hangman. This moved him somewhat, and feeling it prophetic, it made him walk up and down a little before he went forward. But his signature is there in martyr luster, with the honored names of those thousands of others on the great parchment of deerskin, the holiest thing in all of Scotland, a vow registered in heaven. The last 12 years of his life were spent in Stirling, the gray fortress town whose castled rock is ever a symbol of him. Here he lived and devotedly wrought for Christ and his Kirk. Steady in temper, he believed in the loosening up of the knots of every argument before engaging in any further reasoning. Fervent in spirit and not slothful in business, he was careful, loving, and true. An undaunted fighter in a worthwhile cause and a hater of everything lower than true godliness. Men such as he were soon and always in conflict with the loose living King Charles Stuart and his light committees. He utterly refused such a profane ruler any authority in the affairs of the church. Although dismissed after one big trial, his refusal to allow the king any power over the conscience of a Christian was made much 
of against him in his later trials, 10 years later. He helped write the searching pamphlet entitled The Causes of the Lord's Wrath Against Scotland, this being the principal pretext for his condemnation and execution. It had the honor of being put on par with Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford, and copies of both books were publicly burned by the common hangman. To hold a copy carried the charge of treason against king and government. It was the noxious doctrine that Erastus taught when he averred that the king was sovereign and supreme in all matters, temporal and spiritual, and that if a church exercised powers of government and discipline in her own lawful sphere, it broke in on the authority of the magistrate. Every page of the prescribed books of the crown rights of the Redeemer in his church, the freedom of the conscience and against the so-called divine right of kings. The worldly indictment set forth against James Guthrie gives some vivid insight of his amazing activity. He did contrive, complot, counsel, consult, draw up, frame, invent, spread abroad or disperse, speak, preach, declaim, or utter divers and sundry vile seditions and treasonable remonstrances, declarations, petitions, instructions, letters, speeches, preaching, declamations, and other expressions tending to the vilifying and contemning slander and reproach of his majesty, his progenitor, his person, majesty, dignity, authority, prerogative, royal, and government. Truth were to be seen once again upon the human scene. Soon they were upon the scaffold above the serried rows of glittering steel, and Sickerfoot, who had been offered a bishop, bishopric and had refused it, stepped forward with loving zeal to give his last message. The crowd stood hushed to hear him say, I take God to record upon my souls. I would not exchange the scaffold with the place and mitre of the greatest prelate of Britain. Blessed be God, who has shown mercy unto me, such a wretch, and has revealed his son in me, and made me a minister of the everlasting gospel, and that he hath denied, deigned, in the midst of much contradiction from Satan and the world, to seal my ministry upon the hearts of not a few of his people, and especially in the station where I was last. I mean the congregation of Presbytery of Sterling. Jesus Christ is my light, my righteousness, my strength, and my salvation, and all my desire. Him, O oh Him, I do with all my strength and all my soul commend to you. Bless Him, O oh my souls, from henceforth and forever. Lord, now lettest thou my servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. The further up the ladder he went, exclaiming, Art not, art not thou from everlasting, O Lord my God? I shall not die, but live. And in the last seconds before he was with Christ, Sickerfoot, as sure of foot and full of faith as Joshua, lifted the napkin from his face, crying, 
the covenants, the covenants, they shall yet be Scotland's reviving. Captain Williams Govan, intently watching, stood by. His martial soldier shoulders were squared, gazed lovingly at the dangling head minister of Christ. He thought of Calvary's tree. It is sweet. It is sweet. He cried otherwise, how do I with courage look upon the corpse of him who hangs here? Richard Cameron, the Lion of the Covenant, Swankar Town, 12 June, 1680. A band of about 20 horsemen are clattering up the street to the town cross, people running up to see them. It's Richie, they cried. It's Richie Cameron, here with the hillmen. It was Richard Cameron, Lion of the Covenant, Richard Cordelon, indeed, with some of the faithful remnants. He and his brother Michael dismounted. The others formed a circle about them. It was about the first anniversary of the Bothwell Briggs slaughter, and for the murder of their comrades, this was the answer. The inestimable brave Sanguar Declaration. In clear and solemn tones, Michael Cameron reads that they say, they disown Charles Stewart, who hath been reigning, or rather tyrannizing, as we may say, on the throne of Britain these years bygone and having by right, title to, or interest in the said crown of Scotland for government as forfeited for several years since by perjury and breach of covenant, both to God and his Kirk, and usurpation of his crown and royal prerogatives therein. Captain of salvation, do declare, uh, the captain of salvation, we do declare with such a war, and also being under the standard of our Lord Jesus Christ, do declare war with such a tyrant and usurper, and all the men of his practices and enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ and his cause and the covenants and against all such strengthened by him. And we also denounce and by this uh, resent the, re the reception of the Duke of York, that professed papist and repugnant of our principles and vows to the Most High God, that high-born wretch, the Duke of York, had sneeringly threatened to make parts of Scotland like a hunting field. For the hunted who knew him as the devil's lieutenant, this was the answer. Thomas Campbell nailed the fearless words to the door. Another prayer, a verse or two, a psalm, and the men of, the fort men of fortified lives disappeared among the welcoming hills. When hands were laid upon Cameron's head at the commencement of his ministry, by the great McWard, McWard stated, Here is the head of a faithful minister and servant of Jesus Christ, who shall lose the same for his master's interests, and it shall be set up before the sun and moon in the public view of the world. This was the covenanter's ministers, covenant minister's ordination. The course of Richard Cameron was swift and bright as that of a blazing meteor. He was fiercely hunted, but kindly housed. And although he had a huge price on his head, there was none who would betray him. Closely sought, he was even ever sheltered, greatly loved, and even unto death. Even with his brother Michael by his side, his sermons were full of warmth and welcome love of Christ for the poor and helpless sinner. The last Sabbath of his life was spent with dauntless veteran Donald Craigle and preached from Psalm 40, 10, 46.10, 
be still and know that I am God. The next Sabbath, Cargill was preaching from the words, Know ye not that there is a great man and prince fallen this day in Israel? The last week of Cameron's life was spent with about 60 others. The covenanting John Bunyan says of them in his unique record, They were of one heart and soul, their company and converse being so edifying and sweet, and having no certain dwelling place, they stayed together, waiting for further light in that nonsense junction of time. It was of them that Delamore wrote, We have no hearth, the ashes lie, in blackness where they brightly shone. We have no home, the desert sky, our covering earth, our couch alone. We have no heritage, depriven. Of these we ask not such on earth. Our hearts are sealed, we seek in heaven. For heritage and home and hearth, O Selim, city of the saints, a holy men and holy men made perfect we, pant for thy gates, our spirit, spirit saints, thy glorious golden streets to see, to make the rapture that inspires the ransomed and redeemed by grace, to listen to the Sefer's liars and meet the angels face to face. The Lion of the Covenant spent his last night on earth at Meadowhen Farm. The next day, about four in the afternoon, the Dragoons came up uh, upon that Bible reading band in the very desolate place of Aramos. The Covenanters gathered around their young leader with horsemen on either side of those foot. He led them in a final prayer, appealing to the Lord of the Sabbath to spare the green and take the right. Looking upon his younger brother, he said, Come now, Michael, let us finish this. For this is the day that I have longed for, to die fighting against our Lord's avowed enemies, and this is the day that we shall gain the crown. To his loved fellows, he said, Be encouraged, all of you, to fight it out valiantly. For all of you who fall this day, I see heaven's gate cast wide open to receive them. Then with eyes turned upwards to heaven, in calm resignation, they sang their last song to the God of salvation. The dragoons emboldened by great numbers and better arms attacked at once. The wanderers, as was their wont, defended bravely. Amongst them flashed to God the dauntless spirit of him known amongst the men as the Lion of the Covenant, and Michael the inseparable went with him. Robert Murray, charged with delivering evidence before the council, said, Here are the heads and the hands that lived and lived praying and preaching and died praying and fighting. Before the hangman set head and hands on the blood-stained Nethbow port, the fingers pointing upward grimly, they were shown to a hero saint lying in prison, Alan Cameron, Covenanter. The cruel question was asked of him, do you know them? He kissed them and said, I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord, it is the Lord's good will who cannot wrong me or mine, but has goodness and mercy to follow us all of our days. A prisoner, head of a broken home, and the father of martyred sons and daughter, it was the answer of more than conquerors, of more than conquerors who suffer for Christ. All right, our next covenanter is uh, David Haxton. And uh, uh, in our, in our last, in our last uh, focus was on Richard Cameron. Welcome and in to that, talk to you. 
Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. I'm sorry, key. Tim. I'm sorry, Thomas. This will only take a you second. You may access the call okay. up to 15 minutes before it's... You are now joining the call. Okay. Recorded live. Matt, we'll use the recording here. Okay. Okay, go on, Thomas. I'm sorry. You to... are unmuted. No problem. Talk, talk you had dropped the call. I don't know why the Skype okay. on this end and, and the connection with, with um, you gentlemen making the presentation... It is fine, and, and I will post the Christogenia recording of this program on Christogenia.org. I'm Great. sorry, Thomas. Go ahead. No problem. You probably just don't like my voice. <laughs> in, in the last segment, we were talking about Richard Cameron, and it talked about another covenanter in there, um, John Bunyan. And uh, if you, most people are familiar with uh, Pilgrim's Progress and the book that he wrote in prison, and uh, it was interesting, some of the some of the charges against John Bunyan that I read were um, he refused to read the Book of Common Prayer because it left out the Holy Spirit. And uh, he was also uh, charged with refusing to attend church on a regular basis. But anyway, um, our next covenanter is David Haxton. And this is from, uh, again, uh, Fair Sunshine. They cut the heart out from out the living man and waved it as a flag is waved upon the battle's van and burned it as a beast is burned some idol to appease and cast the human ashes round like incense on the breeze. And they did it in the name of God where were his lightnings then. They came not with consuming fire to light the everlasting pyre for these blaspheming men. One now in faith with the persecuted and despised, he deliberately became one of with them in practice, counting their fellowships greater than riches. His yea and amen were theirs. In mountain cave and on bloody field, his heart and hands were in his words, all faithful things, till that cruel day when no words to man was permitted him, and of heart and hands, he had none. He joined Richard Cameron and his men of one accord. One door only was open to them, the way to the throne, by prayer or presence. The Covenanters' colors were rightly chosen, those of scarlet and blue. For a year amongst the glens and moors, they had sweet fellowship together. But on a summer day, on the lone Erasmus, they sang their last song to God of their so-prized salvation. With their leader, Richard Cameron, as he said his last prayer, David Haxton was by Cameron's side when Cameron fell that day. Haxton himself cut down and was taken prisoner. David Haxton was immediately brought before the council, questioned and found to be true to Christ, the covenant, and his fellow covenanters. I stand before you as a prisoner of Jesus Christ for adhering to his cause and interest, which has been sealed with the blood of many worthies who have suffered in these lands. It is for this I witness to the truth of Christ. Here is his sentence in all its stark savagery. That his body be drawn backwards on a hurdle to the cross of Edinburgh, 
and that there be a high scaffold erected a little above the cross, where in the first place his right hand is to be struck off, and after some time his left hand, that he is to be hanged up and cut down alive, his bowels to be taken out and his heart to be shown by the hangman to the people, his heart and bowels to be burnt in the fire, his head to be cut off, and his body divided into four quarters, his head to be fixed on the nether bow, one of his quarters and both hands to be affixed at St. Andrews, another quarter to Glasgow, a third to Leith, a fourth to Burntus Outland, that none presume to be in mourning for him, nor any coffin brought. The sentence was duly carried out. The grace of God was glorified in David Haxon's life, so that all who think of him must think sufferings of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, too. Amen. Amen. All right. Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson before a very, very savage court at Wigtown, 13 April 1865, stood four female prisoners. All of them have refused prelacy and the oath of abjuration, which later, uh, which later made it swear uh, on the Church of God to be, excuse me, uh, they refused prelacy and the oath of abjuration, which later made it swear owned the Church of God to be a department of the state. Their indictment was for rebellion, attending of the field meetings, conventicles, and for the meeting of worship indoors, 20 each. Finding them guilty, Grierson of Lag, a violent persecutor of the Covenanters, ordered that they should receive sentence on their knees. They refused to bow, but they were forcefully made to bow, and they were held in place while sentence was pronounced upon them. Margaret McLaughlin, Widow, 70 years of age, to die by drowning. Margaret Maxwell, serving maid of 20 years, to be flogged publicly through the streets of Wigtown three days in succession, and to stand each of these days one hour in the stocks. Margaret Wilson, farmer's daughter, 18 years of age, to die by drowning. Agnes Wilson, sister of Margaret, 13 years of age, her father, Gilbert Wilson, to pay 100 pounds bond for her release. Margaret McLaughlin was of a manner of life, a manner of life Christ-like and very highly esteemed by her fellow Christians. She was much harassed by the persecutors, and one day while in prayer with her family around her, a party of dragoons arrived, arrested her, and put her into prison where she suffered much from want of food, fire, and bed. She had not even light to read the Holy Scriptures. All her record is found in these words, faithful unto death. Margaret and Agnes Wilson, daughters of the rich Gilbert Wilson, farmer of Glebenock, had with their brother Tom, aged 16, refused to conform to vain religion. Searched for, uh, searched for, they fled and lived amongst the mountain bogs and caves, youthful, vagrant, the holy things. Their parents were to suffer much for their godliness of the, for the godliness of their children. For several years at a time, as many as a hundred soldiers were quartered on them. Heavy fines were extracted and courts were imposed. Gilbert Wilson died at last in utter poverty, and his wife to be cared for and supported by friends. 
During February, the girls left Tom amongst the snow of the mountains to secretly visit some friends in Wigtown, where someone asked them to drink to the king's health. That they could not do. They said that this was not warranted in scripture and belied Christian moderation. Thus, they were recognized and arrested and thrown into prison. There they lay until their trial on 13 April, when with the widow and serving last, they heard the sentence and judged it an honor to suffer for our Savior's sake. The next day beneath the early summer sun, those two ladies of the covenant, Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin, were wrestling in the cool swellings of the Jordan. They were summer and winter in the glorious cause, Margaret of the flaxen hair and Margaret of the gray. They were taken down to the uh, bloodknot burn, which filled with Solway from the seas with the swift running tides coming in. Two long stakes had been fixed deeply in the bed of the burn. The farther, the farther out one near to the oncoming waves was for Mother Margaret. The other near to the land was for Margaret the maid. We never read of any word the old saint spoke. It appears that sick at heart and disappointed with mad, the mad cruelty of humanity, she turned to unending communion with the Father. It is needless to speak uh, to that damned old bitch, they rudely cried. Let her go to hell. And they tied her roughly fast, and le- uh, fast, uh, le- fast to her leafless but fruitful tree. So came the hungry water, up and up, every wave splashing death until she was choked in its cold, cold grass. As she struggled before she came and became a poor limp thing lying in the swirling flood, they said to the young Margaret, what do you think of her now? Think? I see Christ wrestling there against the tide. Think ye that we are sufferers? No, it is Christ in us, for he sends none to warfare at, his, at their own charge. The waters were now around her, and she began to sing a, plain, a plaintive melody she had often sung amongst the hills with the fellowship of the hunted as they worshipped their God. In it, was the young heart, in it the young heart communed with the Most High. It was Psalm 25 from the seventh verse. My sins and faults of youth do thou, O Lord, forget. After thy, after thy mercy think on me, and for thy goodness great, for God, uh, for good, excuse me, God good and upright is, is the way he'll sinners show, the meek in judgment he will guide and make his paths to know. To the covenanters of the Holy Scripture, this, this was the visible earnest of the new Jerusalem. With her light, like unto the stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear, and crisp, clear as crystal, her treasure with her, Margaret Wilson opened it up for the last time to see the jewel therein. She read aloud from the eighth chapter of Romans in full assurance of the faith and glory soon to come. Whom he hath justified, them he is also glorified. And convinced of his bearing with her uh, to his praise, we are more than conquerors through him that has loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. The cold waves now dashed over her head. Loosely tied, the soldiers pulled her out of the water, and when she, when she could speak, they asked her to do what no covenanter could do. Pray for the king, asked is, asked is supreme over all persons and causes, ecclesiastical and civil. 
a blasphemous usurping of the prerogative of Christ as head of the church, an arrogant claim which no covenanter would admit. She murmured that she wished salvation for all men and damnation for none. They dashed her under the water and pulled her out again. Lord, give him repentance, forgiveness, and salvation, if it be thy will, she whispered. Grierson of Lag, in wild impatient passion, cried, Damn bitch, we don't want to hear such prayers. Tender her the oaths. She groaned, No, no, no simple oaths for me. I am one of Christ's children. Let me go. And they brutally flung her back into the water where she died, a virgin martyr of 18 summers. So essentially, uh, what we were given the opportunity to look at was, uh, you know, the tribulation that occurred uh, amongst four witnesses. Uh, the book contains roughly about 18 uh, tales of, of some of the Scottish Covenanters. But, um, you know, when we make a comparison to today, you know, we can really see how far we have fallen, uh, you know, how far our, uh, you know, our churches have uh, succumbed to not only monarchs, but uh, corporations and states. You know, today the, the church itself, uh, the so-called church, is, uh, is a corporation of the federal government, of, or of, the, of the government. In, in America, it's a 501c3 tax exempt status. Um, so there has been a great, great uh, giving way, uh, you know, as far as Christians or as far as their faith goes. Uh, you know, Bill, I don't know if you have anything to comment on. Uh, well, well, let's give some background on the Covenanters themselves. I mean, we just heard four um, four stories of the travails of particular Covenanters, right? Right. That's correct. That's correct. But, but a lot of people and and a lot of people don't even know who the who the Scottish Covenanters were. Okay. And I'm going to read from Covenanter.org.uk. It's a, um, a a general website informing us of, of the, the Scottish Covenanters, if, if you don't mind. Simply stated, the Covenanters were those people in Scotland who signed the National Covenant in 1638. This covenant, they signed this covenant to confirm their opposition to the interference by the Stuart Kings in the affairs of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. The Stuart kings harbored the belief of the divine right of the monarch. Not only did they believe that God wished them to be the infallible rulers of their kingdom, they also believed that they were the spiritual heads of the Church of Scotland. This later belief could not be accepted by the Scots. No man, not even a king, could be spiritual head of their church, only Jesus Christ. And, and this is something that we in Christian identity also should understand. Only Jesus Christ could be spiritual head of a Christian church. So basically the Stuart Kings, and, and, and as was instituted in the Anglican church under the Stuart Kings, that the, um, that they, they set up a, a, a sort of Protestant popery, didn't they? Absolutely. And that, that continues to this day, you know. Well, well, absolutely, and and these four um, people that you would have just presented their stories that they were covenanters who who had resisted unto death, even that the um, the the persecution and the tyranny of the Stuart kings over their faith, 
Even Paul of Tarsus would not rule over the faith of the people whose assemblies that he established. And we see that in Corinthians, and we see that in the general tenor of his epistles. He never handed down decrees. He either quoted scriptures or gave opinions. You know, what gets me, Bill, is uh, it, it's, you know, it's uh, bad enough that the that the so-called churches, and, and, you know, we're using words loosely tonight, uh, whether, you, whether it is church versus ecclesia, whether it is, uh, you know, Yahshua uh, Christ versus Jesus Christ, uh, you know, uh, things like that. We're using some words loosely. Um, but, you know, what is, what is left of Christendom, what is left of Christianity, you know, when your churches have succumbed to the state under the authority of the state, when you have licensed pastors, uh, you know, teaching false doctrines and false religion, damnable heresies, you know, what is truly left? Uh, you know, I can't, honestly, outside of, uh, of the coming to the understanding of what is, you know, Christian identity or Christian Israel identity, uh, we have been taught our whole lives, not even a, not even a truth, but the truth of the gospel. You know, how many of our kinsmen have even really heard uh, the the true gospel, you know, the kingdom of heaven. Um, you're not you're not hearing it in the churches, and you know even more so, everything that's done there is for you know, is by the authority of the state. Everything is politically correct. Everything is you know coming from a universalist, humanist uh, you know perspective, um, Babylonianism. Well, well, the powers that be aren't comfortable unless they can control the religion of the people. Their power is not secure. And, and, and the popes attempted that. And, and the Reformation broke from, broke that power to popes. And the kings attempted that following the, the errors of the bishops of Rome, following the errors of the popes. And, and they attempted to control the religion of the people. If they can control the beliefs of the people, they can control the people and their power is forever secure. Now, now, in modern times, and, and there's, there's a lot of ground we could discuss here first. Notice in, in, the, um, in the studies which you just presented, notice the charges for not attending church on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. There used, to be, was, used to be punishable by death here in Virginia. Well, well right. There was a time in, in England where, where you were required to attend Sunday services. Yet you had to. Yet you had to be an an Anglican Christian. You had no choice. Mm -hmm. They had full power and full control. The bishops had full power and control over your life and, and your actions and, and, and regulated your life to that fine detail where you had to do certain things at, at prescribed times. And, and one of them was to attend Sunday church. That the um and if you didn't, yeah, you 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 were um yeah you were in big trouble. <laughs> Absolutely. Now the um the Scottish the, the Scottish Covenanters they were Presbyterians and, and the Pre I'm not saying they did they did a lot of things wrong, especially in recent times, but they did a lot of things right. Every Christian denomination does some things right. Um. The, the Presbyterians, 
Yeah, you know, 87, I believe it was, uh, I did some quick checking before this program, 30 of the men who were perceived to be founding fathers of the United States were Presbyterian by faith. However, 87 of the founding fathers had attended Princeton, which was originally a Presbyterian university, and they had a good dose of Presbyterian doctrine. And I'm led to believe that the spirit of the Scottish Covenanters is seen in some of the the, the um, articles of the Bill of Rights, and and especially the first article, Congress would make no law establishing um, establishing a religion, and, and that's of, of course they were all Christians, and and and. Christianity and the fact that the country would be a Christian nation what was taken for granted. The proofs of that are replete in the state constitutions. But but Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That, that seems to me to be a continuation of the revolt against the divine right of kings and the authority of kings or, or government over ecclesiastical matters and religious matters which the Scottish Covenanters have been protesting for, for many many decades leading up to the the, um, the American Revolution. Absolutely. Something I thought was pretty interesting. You know, I'm not I'm not uh, well versed in you know what per se Presbyterian doctrine is, but but uh, when I was looking at it initially, I I thought it was interesting that one it was essentially a, a fellowship or an ecclesia with one elder. And, uh, you know, along the lines of, of the biblical captains of tens, fifties, and hundreds, uh, the elders of each of those congregations, kirks, parishes, uh, ecclesia, uh, did not hold reign over, over the other fellowships. In other words, the, the single elder over his house per se. Uh, but they would come together periodically in council to discuss any kind of, uh, doctrine or any kind of, uh, issue. You know, apparently the the Covenanters um, applied their faith not only in their uh, not only in their religious beliefs, you know, pertaining to the church, but also had great influence in the state. And along with what you were saying, as far as uh, the Declaration of Independence, a lot of that comes from the simple fact that so many thousand were sent banished to the America, you know, to America, to the plantations, and particularly around Mecklenburg uh, County in North Carolina. South Carolina and here in Virginia, um, they had a they had a tremendous influence uh, in in the Revolutionary War by sheer numbers, and they were considered to be the foremost agitators against England. So, well, well, right, and they were per- they they were persecuted for many years in England before coming here. Uh, I mean, they were persecuted under James the First that they were um, that they didn't trust Cromwell, they didn't trust his authority, and. Charles II had made a deal with the Scottish Covenanters in in order to solidify his own power, and he double-crossed them later on. That's correct. That's correct. And they were... um, In in America, they seem to have had a a much more successful influence. The the Scottish Covenanters were were primarily primarily lowlanders, and the English had used the Highlanders to to persecute them further and and to wage war against them. 
that the Scottish Highlanders actually made war on behalf of the English against the, the, the Scottish Covenanters who were Lowlanders. Right. And there's a, a, a lot of history there that uh, I don't have all the details in my head to be able to go into it. Uh, I could only speak on general terms. But the, um, the influence that they had on, on the, um, the, the fledgling American Republic is, is definitely striking and, and it's something to be studied. The, uh, of course, the American government has gone through the back door to control religion through the IRS 501c3 um, tax-exempt status that's granted to, to the various um, churchianity religions. And, and that, those tax-exempt statuses don't benefit, that they don't benefit the, the churches as much as they do the donors. That that's the carrot that the churches can hang in front of the donors is the um, that that the donations could be an IRS write-off. What where yet you know people that donate money to non 501c3 um, pastors or or organizations still don't that that they they simply can't that those pastors and organizations don't pay taxes on gifts but those people that make those donations can't write it off as a tax deduction and, and that's the carrot that, that that's hung out there that entices these churches to sign on to IRS um 501c3 status but what they end up doing is they barter away their ability to to teach the truth Absolutely, and, and in exchange for mammon, and and that's where it's evil, and, and the um, it, it's a back door to to religious control in this country, and and all of these mainstream denominations are controlled by the IRS through that back door for fear of losing that status. Sure, it's effectively silenced the churches, uh, you know, and, and it's it's uh, it's a sad thing because you were looking at a, at a impotent church per se uh, but you're also looking at a church that, that is not even preaching the truth of scripture you know so uh, it's kind of a double a double blow uh, you know but just to, to, to contemplate what you know what has transpired from let's say that time the time the killing times of, of the 1660s through 1680 to our present day you know it's just it's mind-blowing uh, and it's also you know it's it's sad when we reflect on in many ways our own uh, spiritual lives. You know, these people seem to be full of love and zeal, even unto death. Um, you know, and and you know, it's not that we don't have love. Uh, you know, I wish I wish with all my heart we had more unity amongst our people. Um, but that only comes mm -hmm. again. You know, I think that only comes from from returning to our first love and, and beginning to do those first works. Well, well, right. The Scottish Covenanters were. Um... Were, were willing to die rather than to accede to the government on religious matters. And many of them did die rather than um, recognize the king as sovereign over their religion. What we're here in America, that all, all of these churchy and these mainstream denominations have played whores and, and have simply signed their, their, their rights to teach the truth away. Basically, that they, they weren't teaching the truth in the first place, but but that they've signed away 
any of their rights to teach the scripture properly through the IRS 501c3 mechanism that they they that they can't that they really in effect can't teach politics that they can't preach anything political without fear of losing it that they can't teach on racial issues and and they basically are are bound to the the secular guidelines of of say the the civil rights act of 1964 um we're all equal we're all the same and and the bible doesn't see it that way of course sure it's 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 completely compromised and mm-hmm. you know go ahead you know the the churches now uh in recent years this past year and um they're starting to have sermon days where they're going to preach political sermons in defiance of the uh the rules and regs of the of their agreement with the IRS, and they're trying to like trying to have their cake and eat it too, when they've already signed the agreement in the application saying that they would not come against any established public policy, whether it be homosexuality or or, or gay marriage or whatever. So anyway, they're they're actually breaking the law that they've agreed to, um, and people like. Jay Sekulow at the American Center for Law and Justice are telling them, go ahead and use your First Amendment right. Well, corporations have no rights. Right. None there's, whatsoever. There's a wonderful court case uh, pertaining to corporations, you know, which are simple fictions of law, but, you know, the court has already decided that, that you know, uh, corporations cannot be excommunicated for they have no souls. And that's, a, that's kind of an interesting thing right there. In other words, they can get away with bloody murder, uh, you know. Uh, well, people ask me all the time, says, well, what's, what's the difference? I said, well, I said, I said, the, the church is living and breathing. The church is an organism with the breath of life from Christ. The 501c3 is an organization, by definition, is a corporation that's dead. So you have something that's living and dead, and they can't be living and dead at the same time. Um, there's a pastor, um, it's amazing that the state even tells us what's going on and we don't listen. Uh, there's a pastor that I know in, in Georgia, and he found a court ruling that might be of real interest to, to most people. Um, it happened to the State Street Baptist Church in Kentucky, and it was founded in 1844, and they went without incorporation for 129 years. Then in 1973, the church incorporated, and shortly after that, there was a dispute in the church, and a certain number of the parishioners sued the church, and it went to court. And the church's position in the the court was that the government has no right to interfere in church business. But the judge said, and the, the court case was Hollins versus Edmonds, the judge said, And I quote, once the church decided to enter the realm of Caesar by forming a corporation, it was required to abide by the rules of Caesar, or in this case, the statutes of the state of Kentucky. Right. Well, well, that's entirely true, that the church becomes, it becomes compromised, it becomes a government vehicle. Subject to its creation, creation by the state. And any church and any ecclesiastical organization that signs an IRS 501c3 agreement becomes an organism of the state. Right. Right. 
it, it's that that they gain the benefits of the state and 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 they basically taking in in order to have the to be able to keep the things of Caesar, they gave up the things of God. Yeah, right. Now, I, I always think of it as you know they will. Uh... They'll stand up and, and uh, you know, sing a little song to Jesus, might clap their hands or might raise, you know, raise their hands and say hallelujah. But, but the fact is, is they love the benefit. You know, they're looking to another master and they're grazing in another pasture. Um, you know, you see, you see some, uh, I guess they're called unincorporated. You'll see it a lot in some of the Baptist churches, unincorporated Baptist fellowships springing up throughout the country. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, it's it's very hard once a once a church is incorporated to throw it in reverse and back out of it. It's almost impossible. But uh, you know, you do see some of these uh, uh, unregistered fellowships springing up. You know, that, that is a good thing. It's a positive thing, but it still doesn't overcome the second the second part, which is the fact that they are preaching you know uh, another Christ and another gospel and, and whatnot. Um, well, well, right. It's 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 a break from the government, but it's not a break from from the the false doctrines that have been preponderated for a hundred years or or better. That the um, you know, there is a brother that that helps churches get out of this mess. You, you know, Peter Kershaw. He wrote a book called. He wrote two books, but the, his main book is called In Caesar's Grip, and. Um, he tried to he tried to advise the Indianapolis Baptist Temple before they were seized and sold off. Um, but there's a right way. I mean, if you get into the mess, if 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 you're in a body of believers and and you want to get your fellowship out of this mess and entanglements with the state, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And his whole ministry is getting them out the right way so they don't get seized and so on and so forth. Well, well, the right way I would think is just to walk away from it all because it's only property, it's only stuff, it's only Absol- things. Absolutely, sure. Yeah, that's I mean, the yeah, word. Do, yeah, do we worship the, the the form or the substance? And, and you know, this is my question: is uh, what is it going to take? In other words, there are many sheep right now. We're we're kind of faced with, uh, you know, contending. I truly believe this: contending for the faith first delivered to the saints. That is, that is what I believe we're doing in, in Christian Israel identity, contending for that faith, that gospel, that Christ. Um, you know, what is it going to do? You've got – I pass by on Sundays sometimes, and you go past these churches, parking lots full. You're wondering – you know, you're kind of giggling, wondering what it is they're in there talking about. But what is it going to take uh, the Father – you know, for the Father to close those doors and let those sheep out of the pens, you know? I I'm zealous for them to hear the truth. You know, I, I sit back and think my whole life, uh, I grew up in the church. Uh, you know, I, I was a prodigal to some point, you know, some point in my life. I attended a, 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 a you know, a Baptist Bible college. They didn't teach me anything. And, I, you know, I, I come to the, I, I come to the, you know, revelation of the truth, and uh, you, you want to give it away. I, I just don't know what it is going to take, honestly, to... Uh, you know, to to let those sheep out of those pens. Well, well, they have to pull themselves out. That that's and and only God could hit the switch that, that's going to make them see the truth to pull themselves out. The, right. the 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 important lesson I think with the Scottish Covenanters, the most important lesson, is that they refuse to allow the king to control their religious beliefs. 
and their religious practices. Therefore, they were perceived as a threat to the king. And, and that's the truth. That the worldly authorities, if you only want to follow and worship Christ, you are um, a, a threat to the worldly authorities, what which right. are built on, on on false pretenses. That the um, the Scottish Covenanters were therefore persecuted for many years by the kings because they were a threat to the, the perceived false authority of the kings. Just for the same reason why Christ was crucified by the by the the, the author, religious authorities in Jerusalem because he. He was a threat to their false authority. And today, we don't, in, in Christian identity, true Christian identity, I'm not talking about the Southern Poverty Law Center version <laughs> or, or the ADL's version of, of Christian identity. True Christian identity is not yet um, big enough or widespread enough to pose a threat to the, the, author, the established authorities. But when it does, it can expect to be persecuted by the, by, by the powers that be. That's the way it is. And, and in some degree we are, but, but it's not serious yet. These Scottish Covenanters, they were, they were actually being killed by the king's armies. Well, we haven't gotten anywhere near that point yet in Christian identity. And, and all they wanted to do was come out from the system, right. basically. And, and for that alone, they were persecuted. And, and all Christian identists want to do, or identity Christians, if you prefer, it is to come out from the system. And, and they will be persecuted once they are perceived as a threat. So are we going to defend our faith and, and stand for our faith or are we going to be sellouts? And we can never, we can never pursue the form, because if we pursue the the form, and and Adolf Hitler talked about the difference between the form and the substance, and 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 it's it, it's a very excellent way of of um of 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 explaining. What is important? What, what's important are the people of the assembly. To hell with the buildings, to hell with the names, to hell with the titles. That's all the form. If, Christ, if identity Christians follow the ways of the world and attempt to duplicate the form, they will also be whores and sell out too. The, 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 the government and, and the king and, and the corporations and, and all of that. So, so we can't find, if we want to maintain our integrity, we can't pursue the form. We can only have a care for the substance, the actual people of the assembly. And, and to hell with the buildings, the titles, and, and of course the tax breaks, and, and all of the mammon associated things that go with it. Right. Now, you, you know, you know that, uh, we're waiting for the day, you know, for the day you hear the cry of Babylon has fallen, has fallen, uh, and we are to to do our best to come out, you know, to the best of our abilities we can, that we be not partakers of the sins and plagues, um, you know. Kind of lost thought there for a second. Well, well, right. We wait for the day that we can depart from the system, but the system Babylon has to fall first. 
And then we hear the call, come out from her, my people, lest ye suffer her punishments. I still, I still think about the, you know, the scripture where it talks about, for they had not the love of the truth, you know, because they had not the love of the truth, that the Father caused a great delusion upon them that they believed the lie. You know, in that, to some degree, you would say they had the truth, but they had not the love of the truth to follow it or to pursue it wherever it led. Um, you know, I don't know if that makes any sense or not. Well, well, our uh, I'm going to use the nuts and bolts example again. Our people had the truth. A, a lot of the Baptist assemblies were racist, and they knew they were supposed to be racist, but they didn't have the nuts and bolts of, of history and scripture to explain sufficiently exactly why they were supposed to be racists. So they couldn't defend their position, and they ended up caving in to the government. Right, and that's just one example, but 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 it's it, it's a a very important one. Well, it comes back again. It comes back to rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, to understanding what the what the scripture truly says. I mean, you know, we've we've gone around and around. They're still teaching, uh, you know, apples and and a snake and and uh, you know a world flood and that you know everybody came uh, from Noah and his you know his descendants. So it, it's it's just one big lie right after another. Well, well, those stories were made, were created. Those stories were created for children. And, and when they were, the stories were created for children, the apple and the snake and all that. Well, when the stories were created for children, they became, they replaced the the true version. They replaced what was really happening in Genesis chapter three and and in Genesis chapter six. The, the children's stories became the, the de facto truth simply because they were repeated over and over and over again. And they were the only version of, of the, the, the interpretations of those biblical chapters that most people had ever heard. Right. So, so I'll give an example in, in um, sound, sound, um, a sound practice being sold out quick, rather quickly. And I've used this before. I've, I've mentioned it on podcasts before. Bob Jones University. Now, now, they were forced by the government to admit Negroes and things like that in the 1950s, like everybody else was. But they had a ban on interracial dating on campus. Right. And, and that was a long-standing ban. And they never had an IRS 501c3 tax exemption. And... George Bush, um, the second Bush, the younger, George W. Bush, I should say, he gave a, a campaign speech, I think it was 2004, it may have been 2000, but I think it was 2004 in, in his re-election bid. He gave a campaign speech at Bob Jones University, and the press made a huge, um, and, and I really think Bush spoke there on purpose to draw attention to it, but that's besides the point. The, the press gave a huge amount of attention to the fact that Bob Jones University had um, a ban on interracial dating on campus. And at the time, I was a reader of the Wall Street Journal, and the Wall Street Journal had mentioned the fact that Bob Jones University did not have a tax-exempt status. And over the course of the next year, because of the political pressure, supposedly, Bob Jones University dropped its pro- prohibition 
on interracial dating on campus. And I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about a year later about how Bob Jones University was granted an IRS 501c3 tax-exempt status due to the <laughs> fact that they dropped their prohibition on interracial dating on campus. Due to the fact. That's interesting. That Now, what, what hardly anybody um, seems to have noticed what was that you can't get a tax exempt status if you teach the Bible. Wow. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's basically a, a recent example. It's 2004, 2005 that this occurred. And, and um, it, it's it's incredible that more people didn't take notice of exactly what was going on what would that story and and wonder why Bob Jones University would have such a prohibition in the first place how could Christians have such a prohibition but that, that <laughs> nobody seems to care because they're all watching football well, right it, it's incredible well I, I made one trip uh, you know a couple of years ago out to uh, Lynch, uh, Lynchburg to uh, Liberty Liberty University at Jerry Falwell's old school and uh, brother I, you know it, it took it took me about two minutes to figure out what was going on there nothing more than you know mongrelization and bastardization and uh, you know I just became so I wouldn't say depressed but but just uh, dumbstruck I mean I you know it, it, it was appalling. But that is that is so prevalent amongst uh, even your your so-called Christian schools. Well, well, the debate within Christianity over race ended with with the um, the IRS five hundred one c three tax exemption. Right. Oh, when when all of the mainstream denominations signed onto that, the debates within Christianity over what was Christian and what wasn't. They all ended, hmm. and, and that was a, a that that was that's actually a direct violation of the Constitution that Congress shall make no law re regarding the establishment of religion. H however, it's it's administrative and 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 it's taken out of the hand. It, it's unlawfully taken out of the hands of Congress. But the Constitution means nothing anymore. It, it it hasn't meant anything since 1913. That's the bottom line. Right. And and people don't even realize that. And and it's sad. But but so, the Scottish Covenanters that they have a lesson for us today. And and the basic lesson is that that if you don't if if you don't um recognize the authority of the king over every facet of your life, including your spiritual life and, and your religious practices, you're going to be persecuted. And and identity Christians are, are going to, sooner or later, that they're going to face that or they're going to sell out. I, I, you know, I think persecution brings, uh, you know, it, it tries our mettle. Um, you know, it should, uh, it should, uh, spur us on, honestly. Now, you know, most people don't want to be persecuted. They don't necessarily want to be a martyr for a cause. Uh, but the reality is, if if, our, if we are in Christ and if our hearts are right, you know, uh, then then it should it should uh, you know it should 
enhance our our relationship or 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 make us strive to be to be uh um, more conform to his image you know i mean persecution is something that, that nobody wants to face but the reality is is uh you're persecuted every day to some degree whether you know it or not it's getting worse every day <laughs> The more decisions you make for Christ, the more pers- persecution you're going to get. Well, well, right. It gets harder and harder to hold a job. It gets harder and harder. It, it gets harder and harder to deal with life in in public. What where you see um, race mixing all around you, and and that the em- embrace of homosexual deviance and and every sort of cretin. It it gets more and more difficult to deal with life on a day to day basis. That there's no doubt. And, and no matter what time period, you know, the, as we talk about with the covenanters, you know, paying homage to the king, um, the, the state, the state has always tried to force Christ's people to pay homage. And you know, to me, the, the ultimate paying homage is April fifteenth. Now, you know, every year you come and pay homage to the state and keep the beast going. I find something that's funny that the state wants is they want your confession. They want you to openly confess with your mouth. You know, Christ said, by your words, you shall be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. And uh, they're looking for your confession in most of their acts anyway. I just, uh, you know, if if the protesters aren't protesting protesting anymore, you know, I I don't know what, what, uh, what we're to do. Well, well, right, Protestant protesters. That, I'm that just, they, I was, I was that they, They've joking. lost that idea. Well, well, they lost that idea with the IRS 501c3. And I, right. I, I mean, that, that they, they basically castrated every um, possible outspoken true minister if he's if he belongs to any one of those mainstream denominations and, and draws a salary from them, he, he has no right at all to, to speak what's true, to, to, to preach the scripture and, and the substance of scripture. He, he has no right to do that because he'll violate the government regulations and, and lose his tax-exempt status. He, he would have to be removed. The national organizations of those that those um, churches and and churches shouldn't have national organizations anyway. True Christian churches should never have national organizations, but but they would remove them immediately. You know, Bill, in your opinion, does it do any good to uh, to go out and and pursue some of these ministers and bring these truths to them, or are they just too happy building their own little kingdoms and uh, not concerned with with truth? Well, well, I have never had any success with, with a. Um, uh, I mean, I understand there are some Baptist pastors or former Baptist pastors that are now identity Christians to one degree or another, and um, and and there are some clerics from from other denominations who are now Christian identity to one degree or another. But but me personally, I've never had any success with any um, uh, 
learned in his own denomination um pastor or 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 deacon and and that's because men that are are, are well well I believe that's because men who are in that position are usually um well paid that they they're, they're well programmed but they're far too um proud of their achievement to ever admit that they were wrong right. it's yet you know it, it's only Yahweh can hit the switch and, and wake somebody up and and until they they have that racial consciousness or, or that wariness of of the Jew the the Jewish question that that it takes to wake somebody up to the truth of the scripture and, and um there's a couple other things that might do it but those are the two big ones it it's um until they have that on their own that they can't be awakened right that they're still asleep uh, until they re- and and that awakening has to do with recognizing the body of Christ but with seeing one, one's own white race and and the injustices that that are being done by by their own governments to those people it it's um what waking up is is just not going to happen we're yeah. promised an awakening i don't know what the mechanism is going to be for that awakening uh, i believe that isaiah chapters 50 um 49 50 51 52 that those chapters absolutely promise an awakening and there's other scriptures but but um what what the mechanism is going to be uh, i don't think any man today really knows uh, i pray that um I, I know that christian identity is the only true perspective on scripture period and, and i pray that it, it's our movement that is the vehicle for that awakening but but how that's going to be achieved is beyond me but but that that doesn't mean that i can't do everything that i can do and and, and i should and and we all have that obligation i keep uh you know thinking about the valley of dry bones and the prophet you know being asked can these bones live you know or or even scripture where it says uh um not by might not or nor by power but by my spirit you know uh, if they keep at some point, I mean, we are so dry right now. Uh, you know, at some point there has to be a spark that is going to ignite all this. And I'm talking about within us. You know, I'm not talking about uh, violent resistance or anything like that. I'm simply talking about him breathing upon his people. Um, you know, that to me is the answer. He's got. To, he has got to intervene on our behalf to do what we apparently cannot do for ourselves. Well, well, right. And I learned early on that no matter how much scripture and history and and language one knows, if that person hasn't had that switch hit by God Himself, that then they're not going to listen, and, and they're not going to believe it. Right. You know, uh, I think what's funny is uh, people today are actually in bondage. A heavier bondage than were the Hebrew children in Goshen. I mean, if if you really go and look at percentages of what Pharaoh demanded, or the fact that you know, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, the Hebrew children were allowed land and slaves and this and that. I think they were given a percentage annually to Pharaoh, but at least they had the common sense to cry out for deliverance. You know, well, our uh, people believe the lies. It, it's we're told that we would believe the lies, and they don't. <laughs> It's the the perfection of Scripture. 
Uh, I mean, never has a people been more enslaved. That's true. Uh, I mean, the average the, the average working couple give up at least fifty percent of everything they earn to the government. Right. And wasn't the, wasn't the tax in Egypt twenty percent? Yeah, it was twenty. I think it was twenty percent. Well, well, when you look at the taxes, I mean, it varies from state to state, but but yeah. I've been complaining about the taxes in New York for for ages. <laughs> on a seventy right. on, on a seventy five thousand dollar home, my family pays fifty two hundred dollars a year in property taxes. That's insane. That is insane. And, and that's over and above sales taxes and income taxes and all of the hidden taxes and everything that you buy that that you don't that the consumer doesn't really see. Including that kosher tax. Well, well, right, and and licensing fees, and and a million other things. It, it's really incredible. We pay at least that the the average um, working family pays at least fifty percent, and and probably sixty percent uh, of its income in taxes. Right. And, and that's it. It's. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It, it's hard to imagine being more of a slave than that. Uh, I mean, th they leave you just enough to subside on, and, and that's it. And they'd be better off as slaves. They'd be better. Well, there's there's no doubt that we are under, unfortunately, this moment, uh, you know, Talmudic law. It's it permeates you know almost every facet of our lives to some degree. Um, you know, Esau was was essentially. Uh, to be given, you know, I don't want, I guess, given the birthright for a short period of time, and and the uh, synagogue of Satan is making the most of it, you know, whether it's the, uh, the courts or the political system or, you know, the tax upon our food, actually, you know, the taxing upon ourselves or the numbering of ourselves, the the list is endless. Well, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We can't get ourselves out from under this yoke. Right. We can't mm -hmm. do it. I, I don't, it, it's all vanity. It, it's the vanity of man to imagine that we can get ourselves out from under this yoke of slavery without a national repentance. And when I say national, I mean a, a, a white people's repentance. Right, and absolutely. our people have not suffered enough yet. That they haven't. Su they don't even know they're slaves. They don't That's realize. The it. They think they're free. Yep, it's incredible. They think free. Mm. <laughs> but, you but, pray for that awakening, or, or come, you know, come quickly, uh, you know, Lord Joshua. Well, my, my wife keeps asking me, what, when is the church going to come together? And I said, it's an easy answer. She says, what? What? I said, persecution. Persecution. Persecution is going to bring us together. Well, well, that's another lesson with the Scottish Covenanters is to see yeah. how, far we, how far our people have fallen so fast. It's only been 350 years. Right. And, and these yeah. people were being persecuted under death for their conviction that they should um, worship and be obedient to Jesus Christ and not to any man. Sure, uh, you know I, I don't look I don't look to government uh, really for anything. I'm very thankful, but uh, I, I, I will share this with you. 
you know, Patrick Henry, uh, when he wrote the words, uh, I know not what course other men shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, you know, he, he penned those words because he had witnessed a, uh, a young Baptist minister uh, being, being beaten to death in the street or whipped to death uh, up in the street of Culpeper County, Virginia. Um, and, you know, and that, is, that again, is not, not too far in our, our distant past. Well, the, the, minister, the minister refused to get a license. Correct. And he knew that he knew what a license is. Nobody knows what a license is today, but it's permission to do something that's normally illegal. He knew that, he knew that his, his convictions in Christ were not illegal, and he didn't need to ask the Anglican Church for a license to preach. And Chris and I are in Chesterfield County, Virginia, and there's a, there was a court case here uh, in the uh, mid-1700s of three Baptist ministers that refused to get a license. I had to be down at that courthouse just the other day, but um, that's a well-recorded case, and there's a you know there's a historical marker out front talking about the talking about the three ministers that refused to get a license to preach the Anglican doctrine. And, and the Anglicans had basically had basically ended up doing everything wrong that the popes did before them. Right. <laughs> And uh, glad I'm a, I'm glad I'm a former Anglican. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well, real Christians should seek to be followers of Christ, and and we're mm-hmm. all brethren. We're all equal. We don't put men above us, and right. and and we we all seek to follow Christ. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. In in First Corinthians three and four. I, I mean, I, I personally think it really speaks against denominations. You know, uh, I'm neither of Paul or Apollos or, you know, and usually men have started these denominations. You know, well, well it's right, but it's, it's, it's a two-edged sword. I'm sorry. It, it's your, you're right. It is. We should have no denominations. But on the other hand, Paul said there must be sects among you, and in that manner the anointed will become evident among you. Right. Well, I'm I'm thankful for the sect that I uh, sojourn with, you know. Uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. so so basically, there should be no sects, and that's true. But sects are inevitable, and and that's true. And, and the truth, it, it it's all part of the hard lesson that our people have to learn. And, right. and that lesson is that only God is sovereign. Right. They rejected His sovereignty mm-hmm. nearly 3,500 years ago. Well, I think one of the I think one of the key points of of what you just said about sex is that when the body of Christ comes together, the body recognizes anointed leadership by the Spirit. Whereas today's church is a democratic popularity contest of who should lead. Does that sound good? Is that right? I mean, I mean, well, God knew. I mean. In the old days, they knew when God appointed somebody, but today it's just, you know, whatever looks good and feels good. Right. It's it's more of a democratic vote in the churches today of you know who gets what position. You know, I honestly don't. I I understand some of the differences between some of the denominations, but because I've never been engaged with any of the denominations, and I don't study churchianity, I study Christianity. I really don't know what they do. 
Uh, I was gonna say, brother, you haven't really missed a whole lot. <laughs> you know, I grew up. I grew up in that pig pen. Yeah. Well, well, I grew up. I, I was raised Catholic, but I grew up apostate, right? Right. And, and there's that they didn't select anything. Catholics just um, that they follow their that their priest, whoever he is, and and that's the the, the head of the parish. Usually, one priest is the monsignor or, or appointed the um, the head of the parish, and he's the boss, and and he's basically a mini pope. Yeah. And they're all appointed from outside by the the bishop of the diocese or or however they do it. it it's the parishioners have absolutely no say over who the, who their leaders are, and I, I think that's also how the Episcopalian Church operates and along the same lines as the Anglicans. And, yeah. and that's that that's a misuse of that word Episcopalian. And it's a it it has no um it it's an argument over one or two words in the way they're translated in the New Testament where where the, the King James Version has ordained and, and it should actually be elected. Because the the um in, in Pauline Christianity, if I have to call it that, the assemblies chose their own ministers and their own episcopus or bishop, if I have to use that term, which is actually a derivative word from episcopus. And, and the, um, they chose their own leaders from among their own presbyters, who are their right. elders, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. That that's the model that Paul left behind, and I have um, papers and podcasts on Christogenia that that elucidate that from the scripture. But but the um, very few of the mainstream denominations actually follow that. Right. And and, and I think the the Amish and the Mennonites might be close, and and they're not perfect, of course. That no um. No government of man is ever going to be perfect, but no Christian assembly was ever supposed to transcend its own community. Right. right. That there's no model for that in Scripture. That there's no that there's no um, authority for it in Scripture either. And and well, until the um, <clears throat> the decree of of Justinian. In, in his novels, no Christian assembly did transcend in, in authority beyond its own community. And, and no Christian bishop had any authority beyond his own assembly. Right. For the first six centuries of Christianity. However, after the Council of Nicaea, the Roman emperors did assert authority over the Christian assemblies. But they had that de facto authority anyway. I mean, the, the emperor is the emperor. Well, we see the same thing with the Covenanters when uh, Charles tried to uh, install his bishops, you know, over the Church of Scotland and oust the uh, the Presbyter uh, the Presbyter er uh, elders. You know, the same thing. Now, now the um, the Covenanters had recognized the secular authority of kings. Right, they were willing willing to, to concede that, yes. And even though they conceded that, that wasn't good enough for the kings. Right. 
which is a lesson for us today, that, that recognizing the secular authority of the government, that they still want, that the, the beast still wants to control your every thought to, to assure its own, its own security. Well, they want to sit in the place of God, that's for sure. Well, well that's what they're doing. Well, by doing that, that's exactly what they're doing. Okay, it's been a good program. I, I mean, thank you for being here, and, and um, ho- hopefully some points were um, were elucidated and, and, and some parallels were drawn, because what we, we do, if we stand to our Christian identity beliefs, we do face the challenges that the Scottish Covenanters faced. Mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, appreciate y'all putting up for us as far as getting off to a rough start. <laughs> well, well, that's okay. I understand it's your first time, and I probably should have had more instructions. I just didn't have a lot of time to talk to you before the program. That's all right, brother. I, I truly appreciate it. It's well, been a blessing. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for being here, and, and good night. I will be here um, tomorrow night with Sword Brethren, and, and we will be doing Against the Paul Bashers. Part seven, and and that series will ultimately have probably twelve or fourteen parts. I will be here next week, next Friday, with Luke, chapter twenty-four. I can't promise if I'll cover the whole chapter in in one week. I hope to. I had hoped to finish Luke in two thousand and twelve. I think I've made a career out of Luke on my Friday night program. I've been doing Luke for six months at least, but but hopefully it's been informative. Thank you, everybody. Praise Yahweh, and good night. Yahweh bless. Yahweh bless you. Bye-bye. Call recording has been completed. Is that a girlfriend? Is it? Why?